Blog Talk Radio. This week on Backroom Politics, special guest KSDK St. Louis anchor Pat McGonigal reports from St. Louis County, Missouri and provides insights on the tensions there. Also, has the media been a factor in the tension and is the militarization of the police too much? Political attorney Elliot Burke provides analysis on the Governor Rick Perry indictment and America continues military operations in northern Iraq. Is this a smart move for the administration? This and tell me a story this week on Backroom Politics. Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., this is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell. And good afternoon out there in America. It is Tuesday. That means it's time for the best political radio show you've never heard of. It's time for Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Joining me as they do every Tuesday to my left, he is the former eight-term member of Congress representing Washington's second congressional district, Congressman Al Swift. Hello, Congressman. Good afternoon. To my 11 o'clock across the table, he is the former vice president of government affairs, for the National Broadcasting Corporation, former floor chief for then, Gerald R. Ford. He is the Honorable Bob Hines. Hello, Bob. How you doing, Justin? And at my 12 o'clock, he is the former Undersecretary of Commerce who served at last count under four presidents. He is longtime Senate staffer, longtime Washington insider, and a very distinguished and handsome fellow from the Stimson Center. He's the Honorable Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Justin, hello. And to my one o'clock across the table, he is the former executive director of the Democratic Party of the great state of Maryland, former 20th century Fox lobbyist and Washington insider, Carl Tuvin. Welcome home, Justin. Thank you, Carl. And to my right, ironically, he is longtime Democratic attorney and political operative, Dan, Dan Lipner, Esquire. Hello, Daniel. Hey, Justin, glad to be here. Well, we've got a huge show today. We're talking about everything going on in St. Louis. We're talking about our out in Ferguson, Missouri. We're going to be talking about Rick Perry. We're going to be talking about the operations in Iraq. But let's get right to it. Uh, the developing story coming out of Ferguson, Missouri. Joining us right now, he is the morning anchor for the NBC affiliate out in St. Louis, Missouri, KSDK. Joining us live from St. Louis County, Pat McGonigal. Pat, how are you doing? Hello, Justin. Happy to be on. Appreciate you coming on, Pat. Pat, first of all, let me get your initial take. Uh, for those who are listening, you know, abroad and some who haven't gotten the latest, uh, the latest developments that we know about, start and give us your insight about the events that started 10 days ago real quickly till now. It was unbelievable. I was actually coming home from vacation a week ago Saturday, Justin, and I saw on my phone uh, a headline that said an unarmed 18-year-old was shot by a police officer in Ferguson. And I remember thinking, oh, boy, this is going to be a big story when uh, I get back to work on Monday. 
little did I know uh, a day later there would be protests and riots and looting that went into the overnight. And that's when it occurred to me like, oh, wow, this is going to be a big story. This is going to be a national story. And now here we are like on day 10, 9 or 10, Justin, and it's become abundantly clear to every one of my colleagues covering this locally that this has turned into an explosively political story. Uh, every single time I put out a tweet with the uh, most benign information, the most scientific, right down the middle, these are just facts, tweet, it immediately gets retweeted 800 times with a different narrative. It supports the, the narrative that this kid was doing something wrong, or it supports the narrative that uh, the cop was acting out of control. And it's, it's amazing to me, and, and it seems like it's not slowing down at all. Hey, uh, Pat, tell us a little bit about Ferguson, Missouri, because a lot of America wouldn't even know where to locate Ferguson, Missouri on a map, let alone the demographics of it. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what the town is like and how the town is made up? Yeah, like the short answer is if you're looking at a map, uh, it's basically St. Louis is the short answer. Now, the longer answer is that it's in St. Louis County, that St. Louis City and the St. Louis County separated in the 1870s. It's a long story. So there's all these tiny little county suburbs, uh, there's about 90 of them, that really should be just metro, should be St. Louis. But they're their own little birds, and they only, like, Ferguson's one of the bigger ones, has like 20,000. So... If you didn't know any better, if you were riding in a car with me, it's 10 miles from Bush Stadium. You, you would never know, oh, we're not in St. Louis anymore. This is a whole other uh, place. Um, so, on a, you know, from 50,000 feet, it just looks like St. Louis. But, in fact, it is its own little municipality. In fact, it's got a Fortune 500 company, uh, Emerson Electronics, is headquartered there. Um, but that being said, all of North County in the last 30 to 40 years has really had a, a huge change where it's gone from what had been either white or white and black to mostly black, and um, it's a poorer community for sure. And as I'm sure you've read uh, in other accounts, the, the way that the government uh, and the, uh, the police department and a lot of the elected positions, they're mostly still white, but even though the population is, is um, I think, just barely a majority African-American. And so naturally there's a lot of tension. There's a, there's a lot of young men in Ferguson who feel like they, they get harassed by the police, that the police don't understand them. So there's been this simmering, simmering relationship for, for quite a long time. Pat, we've, we've heard a lot about uh, the active investigation regarding this shooting. I mean, this is obviously a city that, it's, that doesn't deal with homicide a lot just based on the population size of the city itself. But the investigation that's being conducted by the uh, district attorney in St. Louis County is gaining a lot of criticism, and there are some that have said that um, McDougal needs to recuse himself. Is, 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 do you see or do you have experience in dealing with him? Is he, is he an objective uh, investigator in this, or should he, in fact, uh, recuse himself from the case? He, he is, uh, you know, it's not for me to say whether he should recuse himself. Uh, we're speaking of Bob McCullough here, the prosecuting attorney for St. Louis yes. County. Uh, and he, he just released a comment saying that he will stay on the case, he will do a fair and objective job. 
But I will tell you this, since this is, um, you know, um, backroom politics, um, there's a ton of politics, probably too much if you ask a lot of people. Uh, I don't want to bore your national audience, but the prosecuting attorney for St. Louis County just recently endorsed a challenger for the county executive position here locally in St. Louis. We have a county executive, uh, Charlie Dooley, who's leaving office. Bob McCullough backed the Democrat in the primary, which was a little unusual. And anyway, there's some strife within the Democratic Party within St. Louis County, but a Democrat at the state level, Jay Nixon, has been very critical this week, and they've been sniping at each other. And the city of Ferguson has had problems with the state patrol taking control of the crime scene. And it's, if it wasn't so tragic, it would be funny because the joke has been the, the police and the government, they're having a very hard time figuring out who is in charge, who's, who's running this show. And it's the same problem for the protesters, frankly. We have like eight different activist groups who have come into town that want to sort of assume control. And it is just the strangest thing I've ever seen. It's, it's like a, the Trayvon Martin story, but with, with legs. And everybody seems to want a piece of it. Everybody wants the narrative to fit their worldview or their cause. And it, it changes every day. It is unbelievable. Pat, you, you brought up the, the outsiders that are coming in. Uh, it's been largely reported that the local community activists there in, in Ferguson have been largely urging the citizens, the peace-loving citizens of Ferguson, to protest during daylight hours, keep moving, and abide by the lawful orders of the police department. It seems, however, that there are a lot of outsiders coming in at night that seem to be the problem for law enforcement and have been the subject of a lot of the TV coverage that we're getting at night. Uh, are you seeing that, that there's a, there's a rabble-rouser crew coming in almost daily into Ferguson just to exasperate the situation? Yes, that is definitely true. That's happening. In fact, one of the sort of the dark um, sort of gallows humor joke we had in the newsroom is that uh, uh, we're calling it like anarchy tourists, uh, young people who maybe they're looking for their Woodstock. They want to go someplace where the great showdown is happening and they want a piece of the action. Uh, so that's definitely happening. Um, it may be happening, though, to be honest, Justin, less than I thought uh, three or four hours ago because uh, it was interesting. They just released the arrest report. They arrested around 75 people yesterday, and when they released the names, they released their hometowns. And the breakdown was of the 75, um, about 18 or so are from well outside the St. Louis area. More than 50, the vast majority of the people arrested, are from the St. Louis region. Um, interestingly, though, uh, Justin, only four, only four of the 74 actually call Ferguson their home uh, town. So my point here is, here again, if you wanted to make the case and say, aha, it is outside agitators, you could look at these stats and say, look at this, only four of the people arrested are even from Ferguson. But if you wanted to take the other view, you could say, yeah, but more than 50 were from St. Louis. The vast majority are from here. You can't make the argument that it's outside agitators. Um, so it's just another one of those details that you can twist this to fit your narrative. It's, it's really fascinating. Uh, Dan Littner, you got a question for KSDK's Pat McGonigal out in St. Louis. Yeah, hey, Pat. Uh, quick question for you. 
uh, it seems to me that the at least the national media has done a lousy job of reporting what else has been going on in Ferguson with the police and the community. Obviously, the shooting could not have been the only thing that prompted this kind of unrest. Can you give us any insight into what else has been going on there in the past? Yeah, you know, I haven't spent a ton of time there, but, but I can tell you that there's just been a, a, a long-standing feeling that, uh, that young people, especially African-Americans, the uh, young males there, they, they, they don't get a fair shake. Uh, I have a friend who was born and raised in St. Louis, and he was dating a girl who lived in that area for a while. And anytime anyone got a ticket or got pulled over, my friend's former girlfriend would say, oh, was it a white cop? Was it a black cop? Which street? What time of day? Like they always, she, and then she'd kind of do a little calculus, like, oh, that's why you got off, or that's why you got this. Um, and this, again, this is only second, third-hand information, but from what people have told me, that there is a sense that if you're of a certain age, of a certain color, time of day, street, you're going to get a bad um, deal, you're going to get a good deal if you're white. And so it, it seems as though there's been this long, long simmering uh, sort of hostility uh, towards, uh, towards the authority. Pat, let's talk about the authorities and the response that's come as a result of uh, the unrest in Ferguson. This is a very small town with a small police department, but we're seeing a very large police force. Uh, obviously, Ferguson doesn't have assault vehicles, but we're seeing a lot of tactical vehicles coming into play. Are those from the area? Are those state vehicles? Do you see any presence of federal vehicles? Yeah, oh, absolutely, yeah. And here again, uh, with, with the militarization of the police, uh, and Justin, I hate to keep trying to speak to both sides of the aisle, but, but it happens to be true. If you wanted to say Ferguson's a case that shows you the militarization of local police is a bad thing because it only gets people more worked up and it escalates the violence, there had been nights when that's been the case. In fact, Claire McCaskill uh, was very critical last week on Thursday morning because Wednesday night they went very military and it didn't go well. So then the next night they put the state patrol in charge and Captain Ron Johnson said, get those armored vehicles out of here, get the tactical gear, the snipers. I'm going to walk with them. I'm going to shake hands. I'm going to hug people. And, and that was last Thursday, and that approach worked until it didn't because then the next night they went to the hands-off, kinder, gentler approach, and it was horrible. There was uh, looting, places were burned. Um, so it, it's another issue here where both, you know, both uh, strategies have been used and both of them have failed for different reasons. Uh, so it, it, it's maddening. Pat, is, is this a situation where there's no definitive, clear authority in Ferguson right now? Is there no clear chain or line of command? Because from what I've seen, and, and being formerly in law enforcement, you know, I'm seeing at least eight or nine different state and local agencies on scene there, uh, all of them in different sorts of tactical gear. Is this a command and control problem for law enforcement out there? Oh, absolutely, and it's political. You know, I'm not to tell you that because I'm on backroom politics. I mean, this is what happened. I mean, it was a week ago Saturday, a Ferguson police officer uh, fatally shot a teenager. So immediately, St. Louis County police took over within like a day. So they're saying, okay, this will be an impartial uh, investigation. We'll take this over. And then when there was unrest, 
the county was in charge. Well, the county was in charge until that over-militarization happened, so then they put the state in charge. And that's when Captain Ron Johnson and the state troopers got there, and this was on uh, Wednesday of last week. Well, the county and the city of Ferguson guys, we've heard, weren't thrilled that the state guys took over. And I don't want to get too much inside baseball here, but on Friday morning of last week, that's when Chief Tom Jackson, he's the city of Ferguson chief, remember, he released that surveillance video that, that appeared to show Michael Brown swiping the cigars and shoving the store clerk on the day that he said he'd released the officer's name. And that, those documents and that surveillance video, that went, that, that's when the uh, unrest went back up again, when it got really bad again. And one of the narratives out there was that Chief Jackson and the locals they didn't like the state patrol taking over, and so they put out some damaging information to sort of undermine the state's efforts to, to bring this under control. Dan Littner, a question for uh, Pat McGonigal. Uh, where's the governor in all this? And, and this being background politics, you're, I think you go into the weeds on this. Uh, various different governors have, uh, have various different authorities. So how much authority does the governor have to really just take over the entire region there? Does he have general police powers? to exercise in Missouri? He does. It's a good question, Dan. Um, he did put the state patrol in charge of security um, on the scene, and he has been very visible in Ferguson. He's been coming there. But the next big question that we've been sort of digging through is, will he take the criminal case out of the county prosecutor's hands? He was asked that over the weekend uh, during a press conference, and the governor didn't answer it directly. Somebody said, hey, we're wondering if you will take the case away from Bob McCullough and assign a special prosecutor. And he said, well, it's not a time to talk about that. It's time to talk about security and getting the community uh, healed once again. And it was, it was a clear dodge. Um, so it's, it's an open question as to whether he, A, would have the authority to take the case out of the county's hands, and, and B, if he would want to do that. And I probably don't have to tell you guys that uh, Governor Jay Nixon – probably a long shot, but, you know, there has been some talk that, you know, this, this is probably his last term as governor here in Missouri. He might have his eyes on a, on a bigger office. And so, you know, he might be saying, hey, this is my chance to sort of show I'm fit for, um, you know, for a national office. Um, maybe I do take this over. It's, it's really adding another layer of intrigue. Pat, I want to ask you about the investigation itself uh, and, and what you're getting from the sentiments of those out in St. Louis County and in the region. Uh, it, it strikes me, again, being foreign law enforcement, anytime that there's a police-involved shooting, that there's an investigation, that investigation tends to be close hold, and not a lot of facts are brought out, uh, including the name of the officers in many instances. But this one doesn't seem like it's going by the book. Are, are, the, are the citizens of, of St. Louis County and the region convinced that both Michael Brown and the officer involved in the shooting will get justice on either side? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's the big question. And there's been protests for both uh, of those people uh, over the last few days, Justin, people coming out to uh, say we support Officer Wilson um, and we support Michael Brown. Uh, the latest word is that the county, that the grand jury will start hearing this case 
possibly as, as early as tomorrow. Uh, but the, the very remarkable thing is that there will have been three autopsies on Michael Brown. I believe the third one is either happening today or tomorrow. So there was the initial one done by the county, and then the family hired the renowned Dr. Uh, Michael Bodden, the same ME who worked on JFK and MLK, and now the Department of Justice is doing a third autopsy. But there was a big press conference just on that. And here again, all we know for sure is that Michael Brown died and was shot at least six times. And it was like an episode of CSI at this news conference. Dr. Michael Bodden and his partner, Professor Parcells, they had one of those big cartoon you know, drawings of a human body showing where the entry and exit wounds were. And you, anybody, could make an argument that says, oh, well, look, all of the bullet wounds, there are four on his right arm and two to his head. So he could not have had his hands up in a surrender posture where those bullet wounds are. But then you could flip that around and say, well, yeah, they might have been held up that way uh, because if he had his hands up, you know, when he was shot this way, and, again, both of the ME said over and over again, we can't deduce anything from this. That, that, you know, if you're looking at these entry and exit wounds, you know, I mean, how many, think of it this way, how many movies have you seen or TV shows where incredibly damaging autopsy information that looks open and shut is totally turned upside down, like in the last scene when they finally show you what actually happened? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So, Pat, so, I mean, what are the other Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry, Pat, go ahead. No, no, no. So, so that's my only point. It's just, it's just coming at it from even if you wanted to take like a, a dragnet sort of just the fact approach to this case, it's it's so confounding because even when you release just the facts, absent of any sort of narrative or context, they could mean anything, and that's the problem. People on Twitter and people on the cable talk shows. I mean, people are taking the, these tiny morsels of um, facts and they're running this. Ah, see, look at this. You know, the, the kid was charging at him because, look at this, uh, I know a buddy who's a cop, and he says, if a guy does this, then you do this. And, and, and there again, I, if I had a nickel, Justin, and, and everybody, for every time a friend of mine said, if you guys just stopped reporting on this, the protesters would go away. The media is to blame for this. It's the media's fault that this is a circus. And one of the things we joke about at, at work is we like to say, like, well, which media? Like the social media, like the Twitter sphere, and everybody who keeps you know posting blogs, and or you mean like the old-fashioned like big satellite TV trucks media, or like which media is is, is ruining the story? Because it seems like everybody's kind of running with it. Dan Lipner, question. Well, and I would tend to, and if I understand where you're going with this, I would agree that I think blaming the media is not exactly useful. There seems to be a glaring lack of political leadership on this with people playing the political cards uh, on whatever side they might lie and hoping that the autopsy was going to reveal some magic bullet theory to explain it all, but that's clearly not going to happen. And the, and the question is, where is the political leadership where somebody is looking at this as, as not just the micro problem of the shooting, but also the macro issue of the police and the community? Well, let me just, let me just follow up on that also, Pat, is... You know, the, the one political figure that we've seen that has been kind of quiet over the past few days, although he's on CNN right now as we watch, uh, is Mayor Jay Knowles, the mayor of Ferguson. He seemed to have taken a let the investigation play out and then we can come to judgment at that time. 
but he seems to be the only sensible political leader that's out there. Is that accurate? Yeah, that could be fair. I mean, he, I haven't seen him out there, to be honest with you. I mean, you say he's on CNN right now. Um, I haven't seen him. He hasn't been as visible uh, of late. Uh, I will tell you this. Um, the, the congressman who represents that area, uh, William Lacey Clay, uh, he had some very interesting comments over the weekend. He said um, that they the family won't get a fair trial at the county level. Uh, he said this, you know, on live TV. Um, so, so there again, there's sort of like uh, the, the different levels of government at odds over over how this should proceed. But, but, but Dan, you make an excellent point. I, I mean, there really is. I don't think I'm making a um, very um, uh, scandalous statement when I say there's been a bit of a leadership vacuum uh, everywhere you look on this story. And for me personally, when Captain Ron Johnson took command of this situation last week, and his first night was Thursday, and that was the first night that they tried non-tactical, let's take it to the streets, let's you know, reach out, let's hug, let's try to work this out. And for a night, that was a big success. For about 24 hours, a lot of people, I'm not the only one, thought, finally, you know, Captain Johnson, like somebody, and they called him Brother Johnson, he's from that area, they clearly embraced him, and it looked like, oh, God, finally, somebody that's going to take the lead and get everybody under control and get this thing, you know, to the next level, but then that didn't work, and, you know, we had, you know, more trouble the next night. Alan Moore, question for Pat McGonagall from yeah, St. Louis. Yeah, uh, Hey, thanks, Pat. I, I'm, uh, I'm intrigued with the notion of lack of political leadership, political leadership, because I'll be damned if I can figure out what a politician should be doing. I can certainly understand why the mayor of a town of 20,000 suddenly says, i got to stay home because this thing is exploding. He's got the entire state and then the entire country and the National Guard. I mean, the, the, the governor has tried. Claire McCaskill has been on site, on scene. She's in Ferguson today meeting with people. She was complaining about the fact that the only thing you see in the media is the, the nighttime tear gas. It's great visuals. And there's almost no coverage of the much more peaceful demonstrations over the, over the course of the day. What you've got here is multiple threads unfolding at the same time. The basic facts of the incident itself and all the things we don't know. The people locally who may have old old gripes, old anger. The people from surrounding cities who say, that taps a chord with me, let's go on over there and make some noise. Farther outsiders who want to incite, and then a group that's looting. It's just extraordinarily complicated, all these moving parts. So for me, I have a lot of, I don't know, I don't know what kind of political leadership is, is, is even possible in this case. I think we're ramping it up. Eric Holder goes in tomorrow. I think the president's wise to stay away. But I have a lot of sympathy for the politicians here. You know, that is a, that is a good point. Um, I, I would agree with you because when, the president, when President Obama spoke about this yesterday and somebody asked him, hey, have you thought about going to Ferguson? He quickly said, I have to be very careful that I don't prejudge these events. And then somebody asked him about the, the right to the press and the right to assemble and the right to protest. And I don't know if you were watching, but, but President Obama went on for a, like a good 15 minutes on these issues. And it's clear, you know, he's a constitutional law expert and he's thinking a lot about these things. But I think you're right. I, I think 
you know, whether that, uh, you know, will play well with this crowd. I think President Obama's position, although maybe it doesn't score him immediate political points, like might be the wisest road to take to just say, look, this is uh, a serious thing. We can't jump you. We can't you say, hi, I'm on this side, or I want this guy, or I want that head, or I want these numbers. I mean, I think the, the wise thing to do is to sit back, let the process work itself out, and just try to make sense of it, uh, you know, within the process. Carl Tubin, question for Pat real quick. Has the governor been, been down to Ferguson? Has he tried to come down to quell any of this at all? Oh, he, he has, to, to his credit. He, he has been here quite a bit. Um, you know, he has been here quite a bit. He, he really has. And, and he activated the National Guard, uh, which he said was um, something that he didn't take lightly. Now, it's a little confusing because we don't have the National Guard patrolling the streets of Ferguson. The, the National Guard has a limited uh, assignment. They're just protecting the police staging area, which is in this parking lot near Ferguson. Right. Um, but, 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 but nobody could fairly say that he's been asleep at the switch. I mean, he has been criticized and People obviously want him to do and say more, but he's been to Ferguson many, many times, and uh, he's definitely been visible. Pat, last question real quick. Uh, you mentioned that you're anticipating that the grand jury will hear the case uh, this week. Are you getting a sense that this is almost predestined for an indictment to be issued by the grand jury? Oh, boy. I, I wish I knew, Justin. I, I really wish I knew. Um, because, you know, typically with a normal case, they're saying it, it would take a day or so for the grand jury to, to go over all of the evidence. But uh, we do know that the FBI has their own investigation that they're working on, and they have uh, 40 agents in the field. And if you want to do a deep, deep dive on uh, the evidence on this case, just what's on YouTube, I, I don't recommend this. <laughs> you know, because you could lose uh, a couple days of your life. But there's a couple of videos out there, I'm not going to advocate one over the other, that people are sending where there are background conversations. This is like minutes after the shooting where you can hear people talking amongst friends, describing what they saw happen. And some of them seem to really support Officer Wilson. Um, others, you know, support Michael Brown. Uh, and I think, I think the FBI, I hope, and I hope the county, I hope everybody, I hope they're finding these people. You know, we've, we've seen a handful of people on the TV news who claim that they saw everything. But when you watch these YouTube videos and you hear these voices in the background, it sounds like a lot of people saw this. And I, I really do. I hope and pray that enough people who actually saw what happened uh, get in front of the authorities and a consistent as close to the truth narrative uh, as possible comes out. Uh, I really do pray for that. Fantastic. Hey, uh, Pat McGonigal, anchor from KSDK, the uh, NBC affiliate out there in St. Louis. Pat, thanks again for joining us. Appreciate it. Good luck to you guys out there in St. Louis. Great. It was a thrill. Thanks, Justin. When we come back, we're going to have our roundtable discussion about the events out in Ferguson and give you our observations. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom in Washington, D.C. We'll be back in four minutes. Stay with us. You know, here on Backroom Politics, you hear us order drinks uh, during happy hour, the second hour of Backroom Politics live on Blog Talk Radio. But what you don't understand is the quality of the drink that we're getting here at Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Backroom Politics premier sponsor, Hey, 
you got Dave Hammerly and the bar crew there at Shelly's Back Room that really know how to pour a drink. Whether it's something simple like my on-air Jack Daniels on the rocks with a splash of water, or whether it's something elaborate like what has to be the best martini in the District of Columbia for Congressman Al Swift. Wine selection, scotch selection that will blow your mind. They've got Highland scotches. They've got Isla Sky scotches, blended, single malts, anything you want. Port wines to go with that great cigar from the great humidor. Down here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Come on down, have a drink, and make some new friends. Or, heck, just come on down and listen to Backroom Politics on Tuesdays. Shelley's back room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is the best political radio show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics on Blog Talk Radio. We're going to continue our discussion. Just had a great interview from uh, KSDK's Pat McGonigal out there in St. Louis talking about the, uh, the view on the ground there. And I want to talk a little bit. I mean, this is obviously leading all of the political and, and news stories right now. Congressman Al, when you see this, you have some really strong thoughts on what's going on with the whole 
coverage as well as the whole situation out there in Ferguson. Well, and with the situation that this could have happened in a lot of little towns uh, all across the country. And every time black people, particularly young black men, say, I'm being picked on, uh, it tends to be, oh, John, I've heard that all before, you know, stop being such a baby. That an attitude among the society at large that this doesn't really go on and it's not really that bad. Well, I had a black son-in-law and my daughter and he used to drive home separately. They'd meet after work and then they'd go home separately. Well, my daughter always drove ahead, keeping her eye in the background and there was a very good chance, it happened many times, that her husband would get pulled over. Now, this is out, uh, you know, around the Dulles area. And he was never arrested or anything, but she, she just automatically would pull over and wait for him, and he'd come along, and they'd go on home. The idea that, this, that there isn't a problem with driving while black is nonsense. And I think the larger society's got to get over the idea that it's somehow a myth. It is not a myth. Then, what do you do about it? And clearly, nothing was put in place, nothing was done in Ferguson or in any of these other towns that, that, throughout this country to deal with a situation where you have a large black population uh, and there's very few blacks in the police department. That's, that's just bound to be an explosive situation and we don't do much about you know, it. Al, there are so many problems with the situation out in Ferguson. I mean, Along with the situation of the long-standing tension between what has been a growing black community inside this traditionally half-and-half -half type uh, demographic that longly resided inside Ferguson, but you've also got the situation of a definitive, and Alan brought this up rightfully so, a definitive lack of any sort of command and control, let alone political leadership, to help gain control of the situation. Uh, Alan Moore, I mean, this strikes you as odd to see the lack of political uh, prowess, leadership, statesmanship to at least come in and show, hey, this is exactly what needs to happen to quell this tension. No, no. I, I think you were... Maybe didn't. Maybe I didn't express myself well. Wow, a little bit of Fats Waller, Lulu back in town, and I, I tell you, when I am back in town, or when any of my friends are back in town, or heck, when we're living here in town, we usually find ourselves down at Shelley's back room. 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Right across from the National Press Club. Why do we come here? Well, they've got the city's best cigar menu. The most diversified with some of the best-known brands and some that you might even know, but you might want to give it a try. Everything from Arturo Fuentes down to Zeno. You can go all the way from your $9 little petite girly flavored cigars all the way up to the Opus X Lost City. They have a cigar for everybody. Mild, medium, strong, heavy. However you want to smoke it. And we're back here live with Charlie's background. We had a little bit of a technical difficulty. I apologize for that. Uh, we're continuing our discussion regarding the situation out 
in Ferguson, Missouri. Alan Moore, we were talking about the lack of political leadership, and you're saying that we're expecting something that's not real. Yeah, I think you know you look at you look at the, all the politicians who are who are not trying to make any hay out of it in terms of the real leaders and trying to do the right thing, and they're all struggling to figure out what that is. And as we heard from from uh, our man on the ground, uh, he said that 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 what seems to work one day or during the day doesn't work at night, and then the things change the next day. I heard an interesting interview this morning with a congressman from Kansas City, uh, Congressman Cleaver, who was once the mayor of Kansas City, and they were pressing him, what would you do? What should they do? What needs to be done? He said, let me tell you something. When I I was the mayor, we had some big problems from time to time. We did our best to figure out what was right, and frankly, looking back on it, when we got it right, it was usually because we were just lucky. We tried everything, but there's no playbook for this stuff. All the political leaders in the area and in the state have, have, have come and tried to sort this out. Eric Holder's coming tomorrow. The, as, as I was saying before, the mayor is a mayor of a town of 20,000 people. Now, he's a mayor of 20,000 people that, from what I've read, is now more than 60% African-American, and its police force is 5%. African American. Wow, are there a lot of cities or little, these little birds around St. Louis with those kinds of numbers? I mean, some of these things start one way, and then there's a power structure that's preserved. I'm not saying that's the problem because we don't know yet the facts, but on its face, that's a problem. now, that's what I was kind of talking about. It, it, it's too late after it's all blown apart. You know, you should be working on it with the to change those ratios yeah. between the, the, the number of African Americans in the population and the police force and things of that nature to uh, make yourself. Dan Whitner, well, well, that might help. Generally, as these issues go, it's, it's not a black-white issue. It's a black-blue issue that there is a consistently a problem with police and minority communities and how, how the police choose to interact. And going to Alan's point or, or challenges, the, the, the issue is clearly there's an issue with the community that they don't feel like they have a voice in dealing with the police force, the local police force, that seemingly, and I've said this before, has been, misbeha- has been misbehaving in terms of the local community. Somebody with some gravitas, some authority, lending voice that is larger than the mayor, I agree, the mayor is not... Not vote, not a strong enough person to to lend voice to this, to actually say, regardless of the outcome of the, of the autopsy, that let's play out either side of this. Assuming there is an indictment, will this resolve everything? I doubt it. Worse yet, assuming there isn't an indictment, that maybe Mike Brown was actually a bad actor in this. That certainly is not going to make this issue go away. Somebody needs to lend voice to the community, and nobody with the gravitas is doing it. Bob Hine, one of the things that strikes me is one of the problems in this area may well be the structure of all these small towns around, you know, in the St. Louis uh, County. So, you know, so there's a problem in one little town, and people from the next town are coming over and getting involved in it. And it seems to me that the structure of the, of the, the number of jurisdictions that are involved in this, whether it's the smaller communities and then the mayor's office and the governor's office and 
I don't know. Else. It just seems to me that it's probably it is a little bit complex trying to get everything organized. That that may have slowed down some good ideas. I don't know, but it it seems somewhat confusing. Dan Littner, we're talking about two different things. We're talking about both the issues here in Ferguson, but let's be clear. This is not the only place in this country that these kind of things are occurring. You can look in small towns. You can look what's happening in Florida. Look in New York or L.A. This is happening all over the place. And the fact that blaming outsiders coming in and fighting violence in Ferguson, these are folks that that have this frustration. And unless you actually deal with that issue, this is going to be a reoccurring problem. And ignoring that is to all of our peril. And saying that, well, it's just Ferguson that these folks aren't handling it well there, which I am saying that the political leadership isn't, but a larger voice and the, at a minimum the governor speaking up and potentially saying the Ferguson police are, have, have been handling their job poorly is worth saying. At least saying there's an investigation. Alan, Alan, Alan Moore. I, I just, you know, when you say somebody, some, some person of gravitas needs to step up and say that the Ferguson police have been handling themselves poorly. That sounds like when, like President Obama, who learned a hard lesson when he, when he criticized the 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 Cambridge police for 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 arresting a a distinguished African African American professor at his own home. And the president got way out in front that led to the famous Beer Summit. That contributed, I think, to the president's much greater caution now. Let's find out what the facts put a spotlight on a place like this. You learn that that situation were actually correct? The police actually arresting somebody on the porch of their own house was correct? Look, I'll tell you what, what the president, what the facts. I'll tell you what the president decided. He got way out in front of the facts, and he got blistered for it. And the point is, you need to find out what the facts are. We don't know what the facts are yet. And, and so, so for, to, to suggest that we need a person of stature to come in and be critical of the local police department strikes me as way premature until we know something more about the actual facts that occurred. You know, you, that one of the great frustrations here for, for a lot of locals is they don't like the way they're treated. There's no question about that. And by God, I'll bet there is a long list of justifiable, justifiable complaints. What we don't know is how particular incident fits in. Unfortunately, because this incident has given rise to uh, to to a national uh, to national attention, everybody who has a complaint comes forward. Some of them from surrounding areas who who say that's what happens to me. That's what happened or could have happened to us. There's an underlying anger here that we have to recognize. Whatever the facts of the Michael Brown case, there's a big problem. There's this thin layer of cover that we all want to think, ah, we've we've calmed things down in in the St. Louis area relating to race. Not. We we haven't. It's it's just right under the surface. Carl Tuman. Some police departments after situations like this have special training, sensitivity training for their for their uh, officers and their and their people. And 
I know this is, has gone on in many cities throughout the country, and maybe that should be looked upon as something that all police departments should take part in. Okay, well, go ahead. I'll address that. The point is, it takes place after the event. It needs to take place not, before the event. Okay. Let, let's let's talk about the facts and let's talk about reality. That, that, what you're saying is incorrect. That is absolutely inherently incorrect. Police departments are constantly taught about diversity, about uh, interaction with the diverse public. That is constantly part of your training. You are constantly involved in those situations as a police officer. I can also tell you, you are taught about the use of force on a very regular basis and the use of force continuum. Uh, this actually leads into the whole militarization of the police, uh, which has become a big, big issue. Bob Hines, is the, is the militarization of the police, in your opinion, I've got an opinion, I'll get to that later, but is this a reality? No, 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 is this, is this, a, re, is this a reality or is this just media hype? Well, I'm not sure whether it's media hype or not, but I, I, I think probably there is some truth to that. But it's also true as we've all, I think, said before, when you've got a community that is uh, predominantly black and you have a police force that is almost totally white, you are just asking for trouble. And that's just stupid that people didn't understand they needed to have a much more biracial police force. But but it isn't the reality. That's local things. And I I, I don't necessarily disagree with you, but I also have have to look at the fact that this is a, a small-town police department that only has so many resources available to it. There are, you know, we don't, what we don't know, if we want to deal with facts, what we don't know is how many African-Americans apply to that police department. Probably not a lot because the African-Americans in that area that are going to be sworn law enforcement are probably going to go to the bigger municipalities like City of St. Louis, St. Louis County, to get higher pay. That's, that's just, I mean, this is just a matter of, Who's applying for those jobs and who's hireable? But the, but that, I only sidestep that because I want to talk a little bit in the seven minutes that we've got left in the segment, this militarization of police. There's a lot of criticism that there are tactical gear, that there is military gear that's being used to thwart or in, 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 you know, insert itself into law enforcement that's been going on. Alan Moore, do you think that this is a political uh, time bomb, or is this is this a real subject we need to be concerned about? Well, I think it's a subject that needs more attention than than, than any of us have paid to it, or that, that it has been getting. Well, no one, I think, thought that if you're a local police force and you thought we're going to give you a bunch of great stuff, some some armored vehicles, some guns, some high tech equipment, they'd say, where do we get it? Where do we, how do we learn to use it? We want it. We're ready. They're going. They're absolutely testing it. What they don't understand is what he necessarily thinks about is, oh my gosh, this stuff is provocative when it is out in force in the street, and uh, and maybe it's not all fun. But I have no idea how much uh, people have been concerned about that as that equipment was being dispersed. But whether they were or not, everybody's. Uh, awareness has been greatly heightened by this experience. Well, well, in the not terribly left-wing world of Cato, they've actually done some research on this as far as the use of both the military equipment as well as the, the paramilitary SWAT teams that 
all these local police forces are starting starting to have have at their disposal. And lo and behold, having these things at their disposal means they use them and use them in many unnecessary ways. For example, uh, using a SWAT team to for an arrest warrant for somebody who wasn't paying child support. So there have been a zillion cases of those kind of misuses of power. I, I, I can't let this go on. Okay, first of, first of all, again, you know, I, I love the cheap seats armchair quarterbacking going on here because the reality is, number one, everybody is assuming that this was something that all this stuff is DOD surplus. I can tell you right now. A lot of stuff is not DOD surplus. A lot of this stuff, they do have some stuff. And you can, if you are a law enforcement agency, you can buy a civilian version of an MRAP as a tactical vehicle for your SWAT teams and buy it through police grants that are offered by DOJ. You can do that as a budget item in your police line item budget. They're not surplus. They're not surplus equipment. You can buy civilian versions from the manufacturers. Second of all, when you sit down and you talk about the militarization of police, if you look at what is being shown, and this is where I have a problem with the media, and I tweeted about this. CNN last night, Jake Taffer's talking about, look at all the assault rifles. It looks like the invasion of Kabul, Afghanistan. First of all, a majority of the law enforcement that I saw in every picture, not just on CNN, but on CNN, MSNBC, and Fox, were all holding non-lethal weapons. They were holding, they were holding weapons that contained either salt pellets, which are non-lethal. They were containing pepper balls, which are a form of tear gas dispersion. That's non-lethal. They were holding batons that are non-lethal. Maybe a quarter of the law enforcement I saw on scene last night were holding lethal weapons out and drawn down on people. A majority of it was non-lethal. And that's why I have a problem with this. No, talking about non-lethal from the side where you're holding the weapon is one thing. When you have the barrel that looks at you on the other side, it must obey the lawful order of the police. Well, that's actually the lawful order of whether or not freedom of assembly in the protest is why were they pulling over my, my son-in-law with a master's degree in sports medicine, you know, and with a, with a, with a, with a the Redskins as a, as a uh, you know, health guy? Uh, what? A trainer, a trainer, yeah, I'm, I'm a real great sports fan. But, but what, I, what I'm suggesting is Justin, I've never found another topic on which I would let anybody say this about you, that you're biased. But any time we talk about police, uh, I doubt if you've convinced any of the four of us, you know, uh, you, you just, well, nobody has made the criticism of the police that you make it sound like we have, we have said. Uh, we've just said that there are certain things in society that exist in terms of attitudes of the community, and they should, they should uh, be handling it uh, somewhat differently before big explosion. And, and, I, and I, I argue that they do. Go ahead. Can I have one thought? Why, if this is a small town, and the local police know everyone in the town, why can't they separate the outsiders from the local? Well, how do you do that? Put up roadblocks at the end of the town? No, 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 no. no, 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 no. no, no. 
Carl's got a good point on this. Local local policing is actually a, a, a real issue. That putting police in, in police cars versus putting them on foot and getting to know the community has shown to have really good effects as far as the the police being part of the community as opposed to in us and them. So Carl's point. Is well, well, maybe I'm maybe I'm missing the point. Are you talking about separating everybody from the current unrest that's happening? I'm talking about they all know they all know who the local are. Theoretically, they know what they look like a local. But you're talking but you're talking about a police department that at most has maybe five officers on a shift at one time guarding 28,000 individuals. It's hard. It is hard. And that's, and that's my only concern. I, and, I'm, and, 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 and look, Alan, I know, you, I, I know you're grimacing a little bit, and I do understand because I have equal disdain for some of the actions of the police right now. The police chief in Ferguson for releasing the videotape should be fired. That was absolutely asinine. It should have been part of an investigation. And let me also say this. The fact, any time that there is the death of an, of an alleged unarmed individual, whether it's black, white, yellow, green, purple, it does not matter, that is tragic. But let the system work. Let the system do the due process that everybody's do, whether it's the same individual or it's the officer himself. There I totally agree with you. I mean, that's, that's a very good statement. Okay, I'll let that be the last statement. When we come back, special guest Elliot Birch, political lawyer here in Washington, D.C. Yeah, every time you get to agreeing with Justice. Oh, you are? Oh, okay. Thank you. Well, you know, five pounds for the time. Yeah. You know, it's like the gift. What do you think? It's sort of filter amount. I agree. That means a lot to me that you agree with me. That means a lot to me that you agree with me. Oh, I know. Well, I'm so used to it most of the time. When we come back, special guest Elliot Burke, political lawyer here in Washington, D.C., political ethics uh, expert. He's going to talk about the indictment of Governor Rick Perry down in Texas. Apparently, you can indict a ham sandwich in Texas. We'll talk to him after the break. Stay with us. We'll be back in four minutes. You know, here on Backroom Politics, you hear us order drinks uh, during happy hour, the second hour of Backroom Politics live on Blog Talk Radio. But what you don't understand is the quality of the drink that we're getting here at Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Backroom Politics premier sponsor. Hey, you got Dave Hammerly and the bar crew there at Shelley's Backroom that really know how to pour a drink. Whether it's something simple like my on-air Jack Daniels on the rocks with a splash of water, or whether it's something elaborate like what has to be the best martini in the District of Columbia for Congressman Al Swift. Wine selection, scotch selection that will blow your mind. They've got Highland scotches. They've got Highland Sky scotches blended, single malt, anything you want Port wines to go with that great cigar from the great humidor. Down here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Come on down, have a drink, and make some new friends. Or heck, just come on down and listen to Backroom Politics on Tuesdays.
one more time. One more once. And we're back live here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, joining us now, he is a uh, political ethics attorney and political ethics specialist. He is Elliot Burke Esquire. I uh, know over your resume, but I think everybody sees you enough in the media to get an understanding. This is right up your alley. Appreciate you joining us. Thanks. My pleasure to be here. I, I don't. I appreciate you not going over my resume. But I'm happy to be. Here. Uh, thanks. Hey, uh, Elliot. Um, you've obviously been around political ethics. You were former general counsel to Tom Delay in the Majority Leader's Office. You uh, served as one of the attorneys in the impeachment legal team of then President Bill Clinton. So you've seen this before. This is a really strange situation. What's going on down in Texas? Well, it is very strange, and I've worked, also worked as a prosecutor. Uh, so, uh, you know, when you're in a position, especially when you're dealing with high-profile political figures, uh, you really need to balance out what you're doing and uh, err on the side of discretion. Uh, unfortunately, in Travis County, Texas, uh, this is not that unusual of uh, a circumstance when you look at the history of this office. Uh, for people that don't aren't familiar, and most people aren't, uh, Texas has a very unusual setup for investigating public corruption. In most states, uh, the Attorney General is charged with investigating public corruption. Uh, in Texas, going back to the early 1900s, they decided to give the authority statewide to this local district attorney, uh, which just happens to be centered in Austin. When, now, Austin is obviously a hugely liberal bastion in Texas, if not the only liberal bastion in Texas. Uh, Republicans in Austin are largely viewed as Democrats everywhere else in the state. Um, in this instance, so you have a Democratic DA who's in charge of the political ethics or the public ethics division for the state, uh, she gets arrested for DUI uh, several weeks or, so, or several months ago. And then what's the discussion? How does this then bring us from Governor Rick Perry having a discussion with her to an indictment out of Travis County? Well, this actually happened over a year ago. Uh, Rosemary Lemberg, the district attorney down there, was arrested uh, for DUI. Her uh, blood alcohol level was three times the legal limit. Um, 
she argued with the police on the scene, then argued with the police uh, during her booking. She complained about the videotaping of her uh, booking and her arrest, even though it was standard. And uh, ultimately went to jail for, I think, 45 days uh, because of the DUI. Um, as I said, this was over a year ago, but there's been a lot of things that have happened since. Um, this office has been highly controversial over the years because it has statewide jurisdiction. Uh, but given the high-profile nature of her arrest and also the fact that she fought with the police and fought with them uh, and argued against her booking and, you know, threw out, don't you know who I am? And there was a bottle of vodka found in her car during the investigation and was ultimately found out. I believe that she had spent something like $3,000 in, uh, in purchasing alcohol over the past uh, year or so. So this is somebody that didn't just simply make a mistake to get behind the wheel with somebody that may have had a habitual problem, uh, the governor said uh, she needs to resign. And uh, if she doesn't resign when the appropriations bill comes to my desk to sign, I'm going to veto it. Uh, I'm going to I'm gonna defund the office uh, unless she resigns. So it, it sounds like to everybody that with an eighth grade education that this is a political discussion. Where do we go from political maneuvering, which it's Texas, there's all kinds of political maneuvering continuing on down there, to a criminal indictment being handed down? Well, as I say, I mean, there's many people, including myself, that have called this a farce, but a farce can quickly turn into a tragedy. The delay case being an example uh, where, you know, you even have the New York Times weighing in saying, you know, this has just gone too far. We may not have liked the guy, but this is criminalizing politics. He was convicted, and uh, I can tell you that he's been living with this now for almost nine years. Uh, unfortunately, it's hopefully at the end of this process, but uh, the idea that this is a joke and we can just laugh it off and Rick Perry's going to be fine, when you're dealing with Travis County and juries and judges down there, uh, I wouldn't be so sure. When, when we saw the Tom DeLay case, a lot of people were quick to judge, oh, Tom DeLay's got to be guilty. We then turned out that he was vindicated. Uh, just last year when a court in Texas or a federal court overturned the conviction and saying that there was just no basis for the indictment, let alone the conviction in the first place. Now you see a different DA going after a current incumbent seated governor Republican in, uh, in, in Austin. Is this just a DA's office out of control or is this a political machine at working? Well, this is, uh, keep in mind that this DA has, has been with the office since 1976. So to say that it's a different DA isn't exactly right. Um, as I mentioned before, she complained a lot when she was being videotaped, and this really gets into issues of speech and how we balance it in our society. Um, the courts have said that speech uh, is, you know, protected speech is balanced against uh, the police uh, serving uh, the public interest in videotaping bookings and arrests and things like this. Uh, she complained about that, but yet during the delay case, they actually let a documentary film crew into the grand jury process to film it, uh, and she's part of that. So to say that this is a new DA is wrong, but it's also it's a window into how she thinks and the fact that, you know, if you're really um, striving for impartial justice, why are you letting a documentary film crew in, you know, to film your activities? Why is that okay? Why is that not an insult to grand jury secrecy in the investigative process? Yet she turns around when she's on the hot seat and says, you know, I shouldn't be, I shouldn't be videotaping. So it really gets into speech, and that's really 
uh, what is at the core of the Perry case, is whether or not what he said was simply protected First, First Amendment speech uh, and within his uh, authority as governor, uh, or if it's some sort of criminal activity. Do we know in the indictment the specific charges that were criminal? We've heard, we've heard talk about uh, uh, influence peddling, which is considered by some states a felony. We've heard uh, he might even be uh, uh, accused of corruption as part of the indictment. What's the reality in the indictment that was handed down by Travis County's grand jury? Well, there's, oh, there's two counts. One is abuse of power and one is coercion. There is no private activity here, at least in the delay case, which I'm not trying to in any way separate the absurdity here. Um, but the delay case did involve private activity. It was a campaign finance case. This does not involve any private activity. It's strictly the governor acting as the governor and saying, I'm going to, I threaten to veto this bill um, if uh, the money is in there to fund her office. Uh, the second count, that's the abuse of power. The, the coercion is that if you don't step down, then I'm going to do so. So they sort of go in tandem, but keep in mind that uh, together, uh, if convicted, Rick Perry's facing between five and 99 years uh, if he's convicted. Alan Moore, question for Elliot Burke. Yeah, uh, Elliot, I, I don't know anything about this, the, the Texas system and the CA. I'm listening closely to how unusual it is. From my naive perspective up here, when you have the New York Times, and the Washington Post both say in the last 24 hours, we don't really like Perry all that much, but this indictment is ridiculous. When you have Alan Dershowitz, a very liberal, well-known law professor, say this is absurd, um, and when you have David Axelrod, the, the great uh, Democrat genius, say uh, this looks kind of fishy to me, it seems to me that barring something really bizarre, and I know it's painful, this turns into a windfall for Rick Perry. What do you hear? What's your sense of that? Well, long term, that's certainly possible politically. But uh, again, having been involved in the delay case and seeing what it's done to him and done to his family, um, that windfall may come at tremendous cost and it may take an obscene amount of time. There is a right to speedy trial. There is not a right to a speedy appeal. I this for now. I have to join the New York Times, the Washington Post. And on down all those fine liberal people. I, I think it's absurd too. Uh, I'm, I'm not a fan of the governor at all. But it seems to me that what is being bridged here is a, an important line that should not be bridged, and that is this is political action, and they're trying to run it as a legal action. And uh, go ahead and say whatever you want about Rick Perry and fight him however you can, but keep it in the political sphere where it should be, where it clearly is. And do not bring in all the lawyers. Uh, and it just, it just follows the, the political process, I believe. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more with that. And I think that uh, it, it, the one refreshing thing about this is that liberals and conservatives seem to agree over something and that this is going too far. And I think that the uniting factor here is that, you know, uh, right-thinking people, I don't mean right versus left, but correct-thinking people uh, realize that our political system is getting uh, uh, way too vicious, and this is a perfect example of that. It's just simply the criminalization of politics, and it's just a, it's a bridge too far. Alan Moore, let the record show that Rick Perry is political.
bringing the country together politically. <laughs> <laughs> bring him into the White House. Yeah. <laughs> Call Sullivan. We don't need to hand sandwich in the White House. I, I saw something on TV about two weeks ago where they were saying that there were some Democrats that were uh, pushing this and were part of this. Do you see any evidence of that? Well, I think that's all going to come out. I mean, the interesting thing is sort of, and let's not forget here, there's a special prosecutor in this case, and I think there's going to be a lot of scrutiny as to sort of who he is and how he got there um, and whether he not was actually, you know, operating independently. Um, from my experience with these types of matters is that there's a whole lot going on in the back room, not to, you know, not to give your show a plug uh, inappropriately here. Uh, but there, there are there are bad back rooms in this country, and uh, I think that uh, that's all going to that, that's probably all going to come out. But there's going to be a tremendous amount of focus on this guy. Congressman Al, tell you what though, but but Texas, it's an absurdity to have a prosecutor, a county prosecutor in one section of the country of the state be the the, the, the person in charge of the whole state let alone the fact that it happens to be totally out of step with the rest of the state politically. And uh, the, the state of Texas should do whatever is necessary to uh, turn it over to the attorney general, probably, like most states do, and not allow this to be, even be formulated in a future area. Elliot? Yeah, amen to that. I mean, it has been something that there are other cases. And I, and I want to point this out, is that it, it's not... I have long said that the problem with this office is that it's partisan. The problem with this office is it's political. They've used it to go after their enemies, even when they're up, you know, in the same party. Um, it is just a problem, and uh, I couldn't agree more that I hope that the people of Texas now wake up. And, again, whatever you think of Rick Perry, it's irrelevant. This is not the way you want uh, to see justice in your state. It's just wrong. Is there, is there any possibility, or is this a fairy tale, that we could see a judge in Travis County, Texas, throw this out just on the basis of there's no validity to this? I never want to lump all judges in one category, no matter where they are, uh, no matter you know whether they're liberal or conservative or who appointed them. I absolutely do think that any objective judge is going to throw this out. a good lawyer. Is there a precedence to this? I mean, is there... Is there something that we're going to see that could affect future possible prosecutions out of not just Travis County, but other politically motivated uh, uh, indictments that we're seeing out of Austin? Well, that's an interesting question. And since the delay case, you know, I always caution my clients that, look, you know, when you're stepping into a gray area campaign finance, um, if you're in some jurisdiction where you have a a very zealous uh, attorney general, um, you really need to be cautious. Uh, we haven't really seen much of that since that case. And ironically, the next place that this happened happened to be the same place, which is Travis County. You're going to hear a lot uh, with the, the Perry case, and I understand he's, uh, he's getting booked today. He'll be uh, fingerprinted. He will surrender to law enforcement. Uh, he'll have his mugshot taken. I expect him to smile in that. Uh, that's, that's become the smart thing to do. Uh, but there's two, sort of, there's two cases that have come up. Um, that is their precedent here. And nothing sets precedent like precedent. There's a case from 1917, so almost 100 years ago, that's the only time a case has been brought under the statute. It was a governor named Bob Ferguson. 
bill vetoed an appropriations bill um, for the University of Texas because he didn't like uh, some of the professors there in the region uh, when fired. Uh, he ultimately was impeached, indicted, and then removed. So the case really never went through the system, but the law was used um, as part of the indictment. Again, only once in 100 years and under very strange circumstances. Uh, there is also a case from the 90s uh, in which um, a city judge threatened to terminate funding for um, uh, the, the city if the, uh, the local district judge didn't fire the auditor. So, again, same sorts of things, but the interesting thing is the court said that this is clearly First Amendment protected speech, and there's a difference between trying to coerce somebody to do something that's lawful versus something that's unlawful. Um, but that's really the only thing that we've really seen in terms of press there. I don't think there's anything in the, in the rest of the country that compares, but there's these two cases that keep coming up, so I expect to hear about that. But, you know, we're, we're, we're seeing this at a time where we have uh, two now two governors that are under active indictment. We have Governor Rick Perry, who's recently been indicted, and now the trial going on with former Virginia uh, Governor Bob McDonald. Two separate cases, but is is there any indication even the McDonald case might even be politically motivated, similar to what we're seeing in Travis County? You know, I really do think with most of these cases, and if you uh, having worked in a prosecutor's office, there's a difference between what a prosecutor knows and what a prosecutor can prove, uh, and that's 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 very much a distinction with a difference. A good prosecutor might think they know something, but they said, I can't prove this in court. Uh, so I'm going to drop the case. Uh, a bad prosecutor is going to say, but I'm still going to bring the case anyway. Uh, you know, the McDonald case uh, is different based on the facts uh, than what we're talking about here. Um, and, again, it gets into more private conduct and influence peddling and campaign finance issues uh, and money being exchanged and things like that versus a straight uh, action by a governor that is strictly official. Um, and I think that... When, when you break it down in those terms, I think it's hard to actually see these things as being politically motivated. I think they're they're probably just examples of prosecutorial access. Uh, you had a question, Alan Moore. Not just those two governors. Governor Cuomo's got uh, some new problems he faced. Governor Christie has still got the Great Bridge investigation. Governor Walker uh, up in Wisconsin. I mean, it's, it's kind of. A, a big season for governors being under the microscope, uh, legally speaking. But the other comment I was going to make before earlier was when I said, is there a chance that all of this might redound to Rick Perry's benefit, acknowledging that if it takes a long time, it's hard to find benefits. At the same time, I think we can all conclude, we can probably all agree that Tation has been harmed even further, is this woman who's the DA, where before... I'm sure those videotapes were, were available and shown in Texas that it was a it was a big deal that it kind of gone away and blown over. She was back on the job. And now the whole country is watching this woman's ugly, gross, disgusting behavior. So uh, uh, good luck to her uh, down the road without well, uh, not being a loser. Well, Alan, that brings up that brings up a really interesting question is, you know, there's now become a fine line between political activity and the use of the criminal justice system for political benefit. 
is this an ongoing trend that we're seeing right now, Elliot? Is this, a, is this something we're going to see more of in the future, possibly, unless somebody stops it? Well, unfortunately, I think that, that very uh, could well be the case. Uh, I, I, you know, public integrity at the Justice Department has had a mixed record over the last few years. I mean, they brought some good cases, and they've been successful. They brought some bad cases, and they've been unsuccessful. Um, but a lot of it has to go to criminalizing politics. Uh, and, um, you know, I do think that we sort of see these ebbs and flows. They sort of go quiet for a while, and then they, uh, you know, they uh, start to ramp things up. Um, but ultimately, you know, and I do this uh, on a day-to-day basis, this is what my practice is, is that there's a difference between corruption and there's a difference between people trying to follow the rules, but the rules are vague. Uh, so their intent is always to try to do the right thing. Um, and if there is some sort of recourse, it should be a civil penalty. Uh, but there has been this growing trend, this growing regulation of politics. And I think with the growing regulation of politics, unfortunately, there's been the growing criminalization of politics. And it's not good for our country. Kelly, there, there are some Democrats that have been talking about, some very, very fringe Democrats that have said, well, now you know how we feel when the Republicans went after and impeached Bill Clinton. Two completely different situations. Obviously, you know firsthand. Can you talk a little bit about the difference of how that was not necessarily politically motivated or was it? <laughs> But, I, mean, I mean, this is a case that, I mean, it was a case that was brought before Congress. I mean, it was, are we seeing similarities here, Elliot? I think it's, uh, I wanted the laughter to die down a little bit. Um, there is a vast difference, and I, I am uh, in a unique position of having, I think I'm the only person that worked for a senator during the impeachment trial, and the senator actually voted to uh, acquit the president, Senator Collins and Maine and then went to work for the Independent Counsel's Office, which ultimately led to the free agreement uh, with the president. So ultimately, I was involved in two very different cir- circumstances in which um, the president was, uh, was not tried uh, or uh, was acquitted on one hand and then ultimately uh, dealt with sort of a conviction or a trial on the other hand. The impeachment process, no matter what anybody tells you, and I went and researched Every single impeachment process is an inherently political process. That's what the founders intended. At the root of it, high crimes and misdemeanors is what should be the foundation for what um, is an impeachable offense. But to say that the impeachment process is not a political process is just simply a fallacy. It is a political process. Um, the investigation on the prosecutor side, on the independent counsel side, I can tell you, with uh, the most sincerity I can say, had nothing to do with politics. It was prosecutors trying to do their job. Whether or not, you know, they went too far in certain directions, a lot of it's circumstantial, um, but it was a, it was without question, a non-political problem. And that's why I say that, you know, a good prosecutor understands that. that the, the Ken Starr got involved in the impeachment because the statute said his office was required to do so. The House then put him on a hot seat and said, we're not going to just, you know, take what you're giving us. We now want you to be involved in the process further. As far as they were concerned, they were just going to continue to conduct their investigation. That's what a prosecutor does. But unfortunately, or fortunately for our country, we don't have the independent counsel statute anymore. It was a terrible statute, and it created these strange dynamics in our system, which 
also weren't good. So that, you know, it was a very good thing the day the Independent Counsel Act expired. Well, I got to tell you something. Elliot, I appreciate your insight. Thank you very much for joining us. Great interview, as, as always. Thanks a lot, Elliot. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about the latest going on in Iraq for a quick minute. It's something that we've got to talk about. It's been on the, on the news programs for the better part of a week. Uh, the latest American involvement and in the uh, decision by President Obama to go back into Iraq with military force. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We will be back in three minutes. Stay with us. Wow, a little bit of Fats Waller, Lulu back in town. And I, I tell you, when I am back in town or when any of my friends are back in town or, heck, when we're living here in town, we usually find ourselves down at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., right across from the National Press Club. Why do we come here? Well, they've got the city's best cigar menu the most diversified with some of the best-known brands and some that you might even know, but you might want to give it a try. Everything from Arturo Fuentes down to Zeno. You can go all the way from your $9 little petite girly flavored cigars all the way up to the Opus X Lost City. They have a cigar for everybody, mild, medium, strong, heavy, however you want to smoke it, it's available here at Shelly's Back Room. Come in, have Bob, Nah, or any one of the girls show you what the right cigar might be for your taste that evening. Again, Shelly's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. As Bob likes to put it, it is definitely the place to be. You can tell the mailman not to call I ain't coming home until the fall And again I might not get back home at all Lulu's back in town talk about Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. It's being the place to be. America's premier cigar tavern, place to make new friends or visit old friends, or even have a lively political discussion like we do here on Backroom Politics. But what you may not know, Shelley's is the place for private parties. Shelley's Back Room is available to host events for groups of 10 to 250 from cocktail receptions to sit-down dinners, Shelley's can provide custom menu options to suit your needs and budget. Although Shelley's is a smoke-friendly environment, 
Shelly's can make combinations for non-smokers based on the side of your party, but heck, why would you want to? With a cigar menu like they have here, why would you even consider going smoke-free? Event pricing varies based on the time of the day of the week chosen for your event. For more information on private parties at Shelly's Back Room, go to www.shellysbackroom.com slash private dash party. Shelly's Back Room, the place to be, as Bob likes to say it. It's also the place for private parties. You know, here on Backroom Politics, you hear us order drinks uh, during happy hour, the second hour of Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. But what you don't understand is the quality of the drink that we're getting here at Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Backroom Politics premier sponsor. Hey, you got Dave Hammerly and the bar crew there at Shelley's Backroom that really know how to pour a drink. Whether it's something simple like my on-air Jack Daniels on the rocks with a splash of water, or whether it's something elaborate like what has to be the best martini in the District of Columbia for Congressman Al Swift. Wine selection, scotch selection that will blow your mind. They've got Highland scotches. They've got Isla Sky scotches blended, single malt, anything you want Port wines to go with that great cigar from the great humidor. Down here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Come on down, have a drink, and make some new friends. Or heck, just come on down and listen to Backroom Politics on Tuesdays. here at Shelly's Back Room. Sorry for the technical delays, folks. We've got some issues with Blog Talk Radio today, but let's go to the, let's go to the phones real quick. We've got a caller on the line. Caller from the 559 area code. Welcome to Backroom Politics. Sorry for your hold. What's your question? Yeah, this is Jacques, uh, Brother Jacques. Yes, I have a question uh, for everyone. Okay, if we want to look at the future, exactly times before he left home what happened was he on the twitter 
was he on the Facebook, what somebody may be bully with him, because it seems that he was very angry at that time. I mean, some, something happened while he was on the computer and chatting or maybe speaking with somebody on the phone. And uh, why uh, those uh, tweeters, the last tweets of uh, Mr. Brown is not released or Facebook or any other accounts he may have. Can you tell us why, please? Uh, yeah, we can, caller. And by the way, thank you very much for the call. If you continue listening, um, right now our understanding is is that uh, the reason why that stuff has not been released is because it is part of an active investigation being conducted by the St. Louis District Attorney's Office. Anytime you have a police-involved shooting, you're going to have a lot of information that's going to be withheld just because it could corrupt uh, the public uh, accountability out there. But uh, we appreciate your call. We hope you'll keep listening. Hey, uh, we were going to talk about uh, the issue in Iraq, in, in northern Iraq, but I think we'll save that till next week because uh, I think we kind of had, with all the technical difficulties and all the ads, uh, Shelly's back room should pay us for all the advertisement we've given him today. <laughs> um, I, you know what? I'm going to go into Tell Me a Story, extended version of Tell Me a Story. We can talk about it in open forum. Uh, about anything that's on your mind, the latest buzz, the latest uh, innuendo coming around, politics, anywhere here inside the Bellator or out. Congressman Al, tell me a story. <clears throat> it's not a story. I, just to... to, to <clears throat> I'm falling apart here. Can you go to Bob and... and Bob look? Hines, tell me a story. <laughs> We've had two great interviews and one great segment, and we just went to pot in here the last half hour. Bob, tell me a story. You know, I am. Uh, I am going to say something that, that I wouldn't. I, I'm, I'm happy to be able to say. You become a Democrat. No. <laughs> no good luck with that. No. Listen, I haven't gone nuts. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I am pleased. You just lost a friend. Yeah. <laughs> but I am pleased to see the president uh, with respect to uh, Iraq. Supporting the Kurd efforts to uh, uh, fight off the IS or IS, whatever, whatever. ISIS, ISIL, whatever they call themselves today. Right, right, right. The Pope is also chimed in on this. I think it's. I think you know, if he would have done the same thing a year and a half ago in Syria, we'd been a hell of a lot better off. But I am very pleased that the president has, in effect, you know, in effect, said yes, we're going to support some people who are friends of ours for a change. And we're going to try to do something to help them stop these crazy jihadists who are a, a curse for everybody except, you know, except their own kind. But it, there's, there's no state in the Middle East who thinks these people are anything but terrorists. And I think it's wonderful that, that the president is assisting some local folks to protect their own interests and protect their own... Alan, Alan, Alan Moore, you want to chime in on that? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree that I'm glad he did this, but as, as Dan said, the Vatican supported this. It's sort of like when Mitt Romney said when we went after Osama bin Laden, Jimmy Carter would have done that. <laughs> yes, thank you that he did it, but but uh, let's not let's not get too carried away with credit. Um, but I have but that's not my story. Oh, all right, all right, hold on. I'll let, let Bob finish. We got we got fifteen minutes, twenty minutes to kill. The fact is, I agree with Alan. It's about time. <laughs> I, 
but you know, it, it's late, but it's still a good thing to do. And I really, I'm, I'm happy. I I have high hopes they will continue to be somewhat aggressive on some areas in the Middle East, and I hope that's not the only thing he's going to do. Well, and it and it may it may have influenced the the uh, the conditions under which we leave Afghanistan, rather than picking yeah. a date on a calendar, yeah. looking at the conditions on the ground, because that would help lead to where we are in Iraq. Exactly. But, what I wanted to talk about was a man who died yesterday, Jim Jeffords, a senator from Vermont. Yes. He was a longtime uh, New England Republican uh, um, back, back when they used to wor- use the word progressive to describe Republicans. Um, and, and, uh, and he was in the House. He was in the Senate. He was feeling more and more isolated and uncomfortable. He was also a little bit of an odd guy. I mean, he was, he was a bit of a loner. And uh, and when he when he decided under that that he fit less and less and less into the Republican Party at a time in 2001 when the Senate was split 50-50 of all things something that uh, it could be again uh, after uh, after November um, and the vice president has the tie vote so we had this bizarre business and I had just come back to the Senate at the time. Um, and and here was here was Jeffords. He was the chairman of the uh, the Health, Education, and Labor Pensions Committee, um, trying to hold this stuff together, trying to resist opposing the the tax cut that was uh, that, that President Bush at the time was 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 pushing. Um, and he he was he there were Democrats working on him. A couple in particular, Harry Reid, most of all, trying to persuade him to come over, and and I remember when he did it because I remember I remember that he he a he flabbergasted and angered all all the Republicans. Suddenly it was going to go not 50-50 with the with the vice president having um, the, the the tiebreaker, but suddenly 51-49, which he did. Uh, Ted Kennedy, who was then the ranking Democrat on the Health Committee, was not about to step aside to let to let uh, him maintain the chair. But Harry Reid, who uh, was was then going to be spending a lot more time as the as the deputy leader under Tom Daschle, said, "You take my uh, chairmanship on the the Environment Committee." So. He did. So that was all part of this deal. And the, the, the irony is that, that the, most of the Republicans really didn't want anything to do with him after that. And a lot of the Democrats who never found any common ground I, didn't really embrace him either. I've got to tell you something. Regarding Jefferson, you know, I had a lot of respect for him. Uh, you know, he was the type of Republican that I grew up as, this is the type of Republican I want to be. Socially moderate, independent thinking, and what you normally hear is maple syrup Republicans. Those are Republicans that come from the very liberal Northeast corridor. He was a great maple syrup Republican. When When he went independent and decided to caucus with the Democrats, it would have been very easy for him especially in that part of New England, to go Democrat and ensure his reelection. I thought it was a ballsy move to go independent, but say, I'm going to caucus with the Democrats. He had generations of Republican blood in him. And at the time, he said, I'm not a Democrat, but I'm not comfortable with being a Republican. 
I'm going to caucus with the Democrats and flip everything. Ironically, from his standpoint, I think because then the Democrats were in charge and there was uh, there there was a lot of disruption in the Senate and then in the Congress. Ironically, there one can make the case that by flipping, he helped the Republicans in 2002. I'm not making the case. People have made one could say that. One it, could say that. Yeah, it, it's just uh, he was. He was. He had wonderful, fine qualities, and a guy who makes that kind of a move on the basis of principle and not a, a profile and courage and not yeah. opportunism. Yeah. Um, you 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 have to really uh, admire that. And as I say, I, do. I, I don't think in the long I, term. I agree with everything that's been said. But I'd like to add something else because I served with him in the House, because <clears throat> uh, he was thirty years on the Capitol. Yeah. He was a very nice man. He was gentle. He was. I, I was surprised he did this because you normally think of people who do things like that as being more dramatic. Well, he was one of the least dramatic people I've ever met. But he was solid on his on his knowledge of the legislation that he dealt with. Uh, he represented a dairy state. I had dairy in my my district. Uh, and I had no contact with the Agriculture Committee or anything, so I, I would always go to Jim Shepherds and said, tell me what I should do on this, and he, he would. Uh, and, and always gentle, always a gentle man. I, I really admired him a lot. Uh, Carl Tubin, you had a comment? Well, I just, I just want to ask the question, since we're talking about so many lawsuits, was anything that that um, Harry Reid did indictable. <laughs> okay, let, let's get back to that. That's, a, that's another discussion altogether. It might have been. You never know. There might have been by the way, some sudden wealth that... Uh, by the way, proof positive that, that CNN is definitely listening to our radio show. They've got cameras down at the Traverse County Courthouse where Rick Perry is awaiting his booking into a correctional facility for his mugshot. And in the... The, and, and that outrages me. And the understanding I, is I, that he'll be quickly released. And I don't think he's going to drive a Ferrari there either. No, <laughs> no. No, he probably will not drive a Ferrari there. <laughs> Carl Thuvin. My story, three weeks ago, when I said, don't be surprised if uh, Rick Whelan out in South Dakota wins the Senate race, everybody burst out laughing. Uh, Mr. Freshman, John Freshman. Freshman says, oh, he's 29 points behind. Well, last week there was a poll taken in, in uh, South Dakota, a very large poll, and uh, turns out that Rick was 10 points behind rounds. And this week another poll was taken, which shows that he is 8 points behind rounds. And... <clears throat> Hopefully, but he's still behind. Hopefully, right. Still he's still behind. behind. Hopefully, I'll have the last laugh in November. Okay, Carl. Carl's, Carl, doubling, Carl, down. Carl, Carl's doubling down. I give him credit. Ballsy, but doubling down. Carl, the great thing about that comment is I can make a poll make a cheesesteak sub-electable. I mean, no, no, I mean, no, the I, polls polls are subjective. No, no, I mean, indictable. No, 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 electable. <laughs> you only indict ham sandwiches. No, no. The only thing I laughed about when when I got this letter from him was 
<clears throat> Were the poll numbers coming from him? No, no. Oh. His pollster. This was a funding letter to his, him. Oh, yeah, oh. His pollster. But the only thing I laughed at was that the sample was 3,200 people. And I'm saying they must have, they must have gotten Pol- the whole the whole state. state. <laughs> Every Democrat in the state they polled. Well, yeah, of course if they do that. Good Lord. Dan Lipner, tell me a story. Um, well, something that's been floating around online, I haven't seen much news coverage of it, Sarah Palin TV, her little website. <laughs> oh, God. Um, Why? W- no, but th- this Why? is hopefully good news to everyone at the table. If you, if you, I encourage everyone to watch this clip of Sarah Palin doing a back-and-forth uh, video cut of her own doing with Elizabeth Warren. And uh, the, the consensus is Sarah Palin probably had a few too many before she decided to film this. Uh, and with any luck, this will be the end of that 15 minutes of fame, and Sarah Palin will be done with, well, with a little bit run, of luck. She can run for the, the, the prosecutor's office in Texas. That's yeah. true. Yeah, yeah, there we go. Probably electable. Too. Oh, not, she's not, no, not in Travis County. She won't be electable. That, that's, that's for darn sure. Um, you know, I... There's been a lot of criticism uh, of the president. Uh, so for the past two weeks, you've been hearing best of shows. Uh, it's, I broadcast the introduction last week from uh, Eggertown Pizza up in Martha's Vineyard last week. I've been up in the uh, vineyard for two weeks. It was not coincided with the president's schedule. We did not plan it together. I can tell you that right now. However, there, there's been a lot of criticism of the president uh, taking a vacation with all the turmoil going on. And I got to tell you something, as much as I bash the Obama administration, which there's a lot to bash about, this always seems to be the one subject that I always cringe at because they've always gone after every president. They went after Bush 43 for going to Texas as much as he did. They criticized uh, Bill Clinton for him going to the Martha's Vineyard for vacation. This is a tough job you got to give the guy a little bit of a break. And it's not like he's going off the grid. What people don't realize is every capability that he has in the White House, for the most part, is replicated wherever he goes. So God forbid a national tragedy happens, he has the ability to still command as the chief executive of the United States, as the president of the United States, from wherever he is. He still has time for the 50 weeks a year, 24 hours a day that he's in the presidency. The man deserves a break, and I say this for every president. Now then, not to mention the fact that he jams up traffic as Bill Clinton did on Martha's Vineyard. God, kill me now. (laughs) But, you know what, i I, got to give him credit. Let the man have some time, some quiet time with his family. It's the only time he gets every two weeks. Lay off the vacation rhetoric. Go ahead, Carl. Carl. The thing is that you not only do you have the president there, you have the, you have Hillary Clinton there, and, and well, that was going to be my other subject. You ruined my my other story. So while the president is up in his beautiful compound up in Chilmark, Martha's Vineyard, Hillary Clinton has a book signing at a bookshop in Vineyard Haven. During the same time, a local, a very affluent local resident held a fundraiser gathering cocktail party for prominent politicos on the island that fly in from all over. And they invited both the president who attended and Hillary Clinton who attended. Right before, Hillary Clinton said, you know, are you guys going to kiss and make up? No, we're not, but we're going to quote unquote hug it out. 
from sources that were at the party. Proof positive, they did in fact hug it out. They saw each other, they hugged, there were pleasantries established. But the one thing we noticed that a lot of people were saying that there was going to be a lot of tension between the two of them. I think that's a lot of media hype. The, the impression that we've gotten from people that were at the party, saw them interacting, there was not a lot of tension. They let politics be politics. They let the relationship be the relationship. So that, that's all I've got to say about that. The media hypes and stuff up. We're bad at this. It, it was a birthday party. No, yeah. yeah. Well, birthday party quote, fundraiser. Let's call it what it was. <laughs> Bob Hines. Think about it this way. Why would, why would the president and the, uh, and the former senator and the former uh, member of the cabinet, why would they do anything except try to be friends? I mean, it makes eminent good sense. It's, it's the kind of thing you, you know, it's, it's, the media loves to play this game of, oh, my God, they're going to have books, it's going to happen. But that they have no reason to be fighting with each other. Both of them have the same goal long term. They want the Democratic Party to be a majority party and to win the next election, and they're going to stay together. That's a good reason to do it. Dan Lipner. But, but on top of that, this is, this is one of those things Excuse that... Me, it's the Democratic I'm sorry. But that's one of those things that that this this town and people in general have forgotten. That actual issues you can disagree on without it being a personal issue. That this is a foreign policy disagreement. I actually have to decide with the president on this and not Hillary Clinton as far as his handling of foreign policy. And this doesn't diminish my support for either of them as individuals. You can actually disagree on substantive policy and without it being something more to actually to attack somebody at the first time. The reality is, within the political parties, in both parties, there are differences of views on things. And it's important that those views are exposed they're talked about, they're discussed, they're debated, and long term, that's a very good thing. Alan Warren? The irony in this particular case is that they that that if you if you read the full interview with Hillary Clinton versus the stuff that was pulled out of it, um, the, the stuff that's pulled out of it doesn't do a very good job of providing the entire context in which she said things. They are not that far apart. So Dan doesn't have to agree with one or the other. He can agree with them both. They're both wrong, but he's <laughs> not right. Hey, um, go ahead, real quick, Carl. The other thing is, is they work so closely together um, as Secretary of State and as President, they, they really bonded, and, and, and that doesn't break apart over one sentence or one issue. And I'm sure the President realizes she's out there going to run for president, and there are going to be disagreements and issues where she's going to express her views, and it might be different than the president. Yeah, very true. I'm going to let that be the last word. Uh, a couple of things. One, you know, we, we've got a lot of people that work on the show. Obviously, you hear the, the voices around the microphone here at Backroom Politics, but we've, we've got a really great, great team behind the scenes that help put this thing together every week. 
One of them, obviously, Bob Matarazzi, the owner of Shelley's, who lets us stay here hey! and camp out. Bob, thank you very much. Uh, What's that I want to. Uh, yeah, right. Yeah. Good luck with that. That'll be the day. Bob. Bob, Bob Matarazzi, the owner of Shelley's. We want to. Pre- we always appreciate him and thus give him the free ads. Uh, I also want to give a special shout out uh, this week. Uh, our one of our associate producers. Yarden Cacone, who's actually working from Florida right now, helped put together a lot of talking points and help arrange a lot of uh, uh, the interviews that we did today. So i got to thank her for that. And then I want to introduce our newest addition to the team. Uh, joining us, uh, her first day was actually today. Uh, joining us now is our new associate producer is Carly Ray from New Jersey. Carly, Hi, how are you? what do you think of the show so far? Good, I like it. You like it? Yeah, that's a microphone. You gotta talk into that one on. Yeah. There you go. Uh, Tell us a little bit about where 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 you uh, where you at school right now? American University. That's a microphone still. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What do you what do you study? Sit on my lap. Ow! Creepy. I would like to get through this without a damn sexual harassment suit. I would like to point out that's a Democrat saying that. Yeah, usually it's Republicans that get appropriated with that, dude. Oh, my God. The, by the way, by the way, Carly, the views and expressions of Congressman Al Swift are not necessarily those of the show or the participants of the show. Let me be clear about that. Would you, could you, you know, when I get the sexual harassment suit, I'm having you pay for the legal bill. Yeah. Yeah. Who, who tailors that suit? Huh? Who tailors that suit? Oh, I'll have Elliot defend me. He's good at stuff like this. Uh, anyways, welcome to the team. We look forward to working with you. Thank you very much. Anybody you want to say hi to out there? Nobody's listening because your family's not listening yet. They'll listen next week, though, damn it. But they can go online. They can go online and listen to it afterwards. There's your chance. Bye, family. There you go. There you go. On behalf of Congressman Al Swift, Bob, Alan Moore, Carl Tuvin, Dan Lipner, I am your host, Radio's Justin Russell. We'll be back live next week from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Bob? The place to be. You can follow us on Twitter at Backroom Politics. You can also follow us on our website, www.backroompolitics.org. Or you can email me with your suggestions, questions, or interview comments at justin at backroompolitics.org. We will see you next week live from Shelley's Backroom. Have a great week, America. Bye-bye.